Hello, and welcome all to this episode of The Main Voga, a podcast all about Norse and Scandinavian myth, heroes, and history. I am your host, Hilda, and I want to thank you for returning to my comfortable corner of the world for more Norse knowledge, and for accompanying me on my spiritual learning journey. Today, we are in the heat of the summer. July is bearing down its sun and its radiating warmth upon us, and I have come to you with a new myth, so titled Himskivitha, or The Fetching of the Cauldron. This myth is one that I have heard before. It deals with Thor and Tyr retrieving the cauldron big enough to brew beer or mead for the gods. Lacking in possession of such a beastly cauldron, the two set off to see Tyr's father, a giant named Hymir, who owns one. This poem also tells a tale of Thor and his first mighty battle against Jormungandr, the Ymithgard serpent. Before getting started, as always, the trigger warnings included in this episode are animal death, decapitation slash beheading of animals, and unprovoked assaults slash attacks upon people. I have laid out the premise of this myth, so now we can just dive right in. Himskivitha. A long time ago, the gods came back from hunting, but they started feeling thirsty before they were done eating. They waved their wands, looked for omens in blood. They learned that Aegir owned some cauldrons. Aegir, giant from the stones, sat there happy as a child. He looked much like Misk or Blindi's son. Thor, son of Odin, stared fiercely into his eyes. You will often provide a feast for the gods. The argumentative god frustrated Aegir. The giant immediately sought some revenge against the gods. He asked Thor to fetch him a cauldron. I promise to brew beer in it for you all. The gods did not know how to proceed. None of them could get a cauldron. But Tyr, in private, spoke to Thor alone and revealed a welcome secret. My mighty father, Hymir the Wise, lives to the east of Elvigar, near the end of the sky. He owns a cauldron that's a mile deep. It's the biggest cauldron of all. Thor said, do you know if we can borrow this cauldron? Tyr said, yes, friend, if we can play a few tricks. They left swiftly and traveled the whole day from Ausgard till they came to Aegil's house. They left Thor's big horned goats in his care, and then they went to where Hymir lived. Tyr found his ugly grandmother. She had 900 heads. But another woman was there, all golden with a pretty face, and gave her son a beer. Son of giants, she said, I'll hide you courageous men beneath the cauldron. My husband will abuse any guests who come to our home. That angry, hard-minded man came home late from his fishing, came into his hall. Glaciers shook at each step. The beard on his face was frozen. Hymir's concubine, Tyr's mother, said, Hail, Hymir, come in and be happy. Your son has come to your home as we expected after his long absence, and our famous enemy, the friend of humans, Thor, son of Odin, follows him. You see them sitting beneath your own hall's roof, there hiding by the wall. 
the giant reached out and broke the wall and snapped a beam in half. Eight cauldrons shattered, except a well-forged one, which fell in one piece. Thor and Tyr came forward. The old giant bent his gaze upon his enemy. His thoughts were not kind when he fixed his eyes on Thor, killer of giants, here in his own home. But the giant ordered three bulls killed, reluctantly. He ordered them cooked. They beheaded the bulls and brought them to the cook pot. And before he went to bed, Thor, son of Odin, ate two whole bulls of Hymir's. Gray-haired Hymir saw it would be costly to feed the hunger of Thor. If all three of us want to eat tomorrow, then we'd better go fishing. Thor said he was willing to row and fish, if the bull giant would let him have some bait. Hymir said, Well, giant killer, if you're brave enough, go out to my herd. You'll find some bait there. I suspect you'll find it easy to take some bait from one of my oxen. So Thor went quickly out in the forest, and he saw before him a black ox. Thor broke the whole head of the ox, gripping its horns. Hymir said, What you've done here is even worse than it was having you inside sitting and eating. Then Thor asked the giant to come with him to see, to row out with him. But Hymir rowed a little and was unwilling to row any further out in the deep sea. Famous Hymir caught a whale and then caught two whales on one hook. But Odin's son sat in the rear and craftily baited his own hook. Thor, friend of humans, enemy of the serpent, put the ox's head on his hook. Then the gaping Mithgard serpent came up, the one that hates the gods and lives in the encircling sea. The bold Thor pulled bravely to bring that poison-slick serpent up on board. With his hammer, he struck a blow on the head of Fenrir's serpent brother. The monster howled, volcanoes erupted, and the old earth trembled all over. But that sea monster sank back into the waves. The giant was gloomy as they rowed home. He sat at the oars and said not a word as they steered the boat back toward land. Hymir said, share my work with me, do your half, either take the whales to my house or stay and tie up the boat. Thor went and grabbed up the boat and oars. He didn't bail out the water. He just lifted the whole thing, and he took the whole boat, with its oars and buckets. It was a good boat, to the home of the giant. Thor carried it through the forest. But the giant was still angry. He demanded a test of strength from Thor. He said it was no test at all to row a boat, but a truly strong man would be able to break his cup. So Thor took the cup in hand, but he broke a stone trying to shatter that glass cup. Then he threw it through a wall, but it was brought back unbroken to Hymir. Till Hymir's pretty concubine told Thor a useful secret. Hit it on Hymir's head. That giant's skull is made of harder stuff than any cup. Thor stood up vigorously. He summoned all his godly strength. He left not a mark on that giant's head, but the wine cup broke into pieces. Hymir said, I know my loss is great when I see my cup fall broken at my knees. I know that I will never again say the drinks are ready. 
The cauldron is yours, Thor and Tyr, if you can carry it out of my house. Tyr tried twice to lift it, but the cauldron remained unmoved. Thor, strong father of Modi, took a turn. His feet broke through the floor when he lifted, but he lifted that cauldron over his head, and the chains that held it broke and rattled at his heels. They walked a long time before Thor, son of Odin, turned around to take a look behind him. And he saw, coming from the rocky east, Hymir with an army of giants coming at him, some with more than one head. Thor drew the cauldron down from his shoulders and stood ready to fight. He threw Mjolnir, his killing hammer, and he killed all those lava giants. They didn't walk long before Thor, son of Odin, saw before him one of his goats half dead. The goat was walking with a lame leg, and this was caused by lie-telling Loki. But audience, you have heard all this. This story is often told among the stories of the gods. It's told how Thor was paid back by the lava giant Egil. Thor took both his children. Then Thor, mightiest of gods, returned to Ausgard with the cauldron of Hymir, and now the gods drink good beer every winter's day in Aegir's Hall. This month's Facts and Finds episode comes from BBC.com as part of their World's Table slash Food and Drinks Topics. This article was published on the 20th of June, 2023, by Maddie Savage and Benoit Derrier. By studying dig sites, sagas, and ancient cookbooks, a culinary archaeologist is recreating dishes the Vikings ate and rewriting the popular view of these people in the process. Replica tools inside of a reconstructed Viking-style building, he dresses the part and dons clothing worn by Scandinavia's infamous seafarers. Sarah has a makeshift kitchen setup at Gunsgard, a reconstructed Viking Age farm just north of Stockholm that's one of a number of locations across Scandinavia where he gives cooking demonstrations to tourists. While the word Viking is often associated often used to describe anyone who lived during the Viking era, Sarah explained that it should technically only refer to the pirates and pillagers who traveled across northern Europe between the 8th and 11th centuries. He said that most people during this period weren't bloodthirsty invaders, but worked as farmers, fishermen, crafters, or traders, and he's made it his life's mission to research and recreate the kind of dishes that dominated their everyday diets. I like to eat, and I like to eat good food, so I was curious, what did the Vikings eat? said Sarah, who initially studied the food from ancient Rome as an archaeology student by recreating dishes from the 1st to the 5th century cookbook by Dr. Ray Coquinaria. He then reconstructed, cooked, and tasted his way from the Iron Age to the Middle Ages before focusing on the Viking Age during his graduate studies. Today, having established that Vikings were much more farm-to-table locavores than meat-loving hunter-gatherers, Sarah is now considered one of Scandinavia's leading authorities on culinary practices of the Vikings. Sara says that studying what the Vikings ate provides a better understanding of their technical skills and ideologies, as well as how people in that area socialized. 
By recreating food, you can get an idea of being there, he said. That makes it easier to understand the society, the whole world, at the time. Sera began experimental cooking, Viking cuisine, on a larger scale as part of an assignment for Lofinten Viking Museum in northern Norway in 2010. There was a reconstructed longhouse, a long, narrow wooden building with a typical Viking hearth, and inside, Sera started to create Viking-inspired recipes, such as a wild leaf herb and cheese pottage, and roasted turnips served with butter for tourists washed down with whey. This experience sowed the seeds for a recipe book, and in 2013 he teamed up with fellow archaeologist Hannah Tunberg to write it. In An Early Meal, A Viking Age Cookbook and Culinary Odyssey, they combine traditional recipe instructions for dozens of meals, with detailed explanations of how and why certain dishes would likely have been cooked in different parts of Scandinavia. To me, the most interesting result of our study so far has been to see the picture of farmers living off the surrounding nature, Dunberg said. The fact that we never find game amounting to more than 1% of the bone material in excavations, and more often a lot less, gives a clear picture of far farmers with no spare time for hunting. Tunberg explained that this reveals a fascinating truth about who the Vikings were. By effectively killing off the myth of Vikings gnawing off the meat of the bones of wild animals, we have broadened the picture of Viking societies as farmers. Anna, who they were, and what their society was like, she said. Sarah's work tells us that Vikings were not only the sort of eating-the-meat-raw-from-the-bone type of people they are sometimes portrayed as. No doubt, Viking-age society could be raw and brutal, but the level of importance they obviously put in the art of cooking shows us a culture of sophistication within the context of a harsh world and age. Viking imagery often focuses on seasonal banquets of roasted lamb accompanied by mead. While the elite in did enjoy this kind of food and used it as a way of expressing their wealth, Sarah's research suggests that everyday cooking was quite different. He said most people focused on developing simply tasty, feel-good dishes that could be easily shared and helped keep them warm in Scandinavia's harsh climate. The winter would have been cold, so yes, people working in those conditions would probably need a hot meal, a hot, comforting meal filling. But with no written documents available from Viking times, apart from carvings on runestones, which usually focused on remembering the dead, figuring out what people ate and how they cooked is akin to solving a puzzle, said Sera. That evidence comes from a variety of sources. Sera draws partly from findings by fellow archaeologists at dig sites around Scandinavia and elsewhere in Europe, where the Vikings traveled. Here, the fossilized remains of animals and fish bones, as well as plants and grain seeds, have been recovered. Discoveries of Viking Age cooking equipment and tools also provide clues, as do ruins, which give an insight into how food was prepared and stored. Sera also consults literature from the medieval period, when recipes started to be written down, but cooking techniques had not advanced much since the Viking Age. Among these is... Lepulus de Art Cocinaria, a 13th century cookbook that is believed to have been compiled in Denmark.
To read further about this article and learn more about Viking Age cooking techniques, cooking utensils, staple, and cultivated foods, follow the link in the description of this episode. The discussion this month will, as with all of the solo episodes, be very brief and more of a commentary. Though I have taken much inspiration from this particular tale, and it is one that has stuck with me, I cannot really start to say as to why. The retellings I have read have not been verbatim, as this translation is, but it is a story I have shared with others. It is one that has been used for a Norse-driven Dungeons & Dragons campaign side plot that I have started writing, and the title alone floods me with nearly every detail that the tale has to offer me. But there is no specific word or phrase that I can think of to attribute to why that is. This tale also brings to me a lot of inspiring thoughts, though I assume them to be purely fabricated from my own mind. It is rife with killings and bloodshed of beings simply for being, and still I find a strange sense of power strung through the pages. It could perhaps be because I am someone who very dedicatedly carries Thor with me through my life, so much so now that I designed a bind rune with the characters of his name and had it tattooed on my inner right elbow. It could be, and likely is, all personal interpretation. Continuing with the trend of our Facts and Finds segment, we will be taking a look at one of the smaller aspects of What Did Vikings Eat? The location in which Sera cooks his food and teaches his classes. Not specifically Gunsgard, but Viking Age reconstructions and their inspirations. The Viking Age has become known primarily for the infamous renown of its warriors who were, themselves, a smaller part of everyday Viking Age society. A part that I, personally, find is passed over when it comes to word of mouth about the Viking Age, outside of scientific studies and discoveries, are the way and where the everyday Nordic person lived in Scandinavia. The image of the Longhouse, also known as an Icelandic turf house, was prevalent throughout the age. They varied in size and were typically constructed on stone footings. These formed a firm base for the house to rest and would keep the wooden structure of the remainder of the house away from soil. The interior structures, as mentioned, were crafted with wooden posts and beams, locked together using pegs and notches rather than iron nails. The tallest of these pillars were supported by stones that were laid within the floor and were the supports for the most integral roof beams, which ran the length of the entire house. Lower rafters, hidden behind wainscoting, would carry the weight of the lower roof to another set of shorter pillars, just inside of the turf walls. These pillars were part of the airspace between the turf wall and the inner wainscoting. Their airspace helped to insulate the house and to protect the wood from dampness that could cause rotting. The remaining construction of the house was made with turf blocks to cover the outside, interlaid with gravel or dirt, as well as turf stringers to tie the wall together. A finished wall would measure about two meters or seven feet thick, with its gravel core providing drainage. Other elements included smoke holes, the front entrance and door, sometimes elaborately carved, and paving stones, which led up to the entrance of the home. These longhouses also had different layouts, but one that has been reconstructed is Stong, a prosperous farm with a more elaborate addition to the main room of the house. Where typical longhouses contained the single structure, Stong had the addition of two rooms along its 28 meter or 92 foot long expanse. 
sections would have been divided within the structure. The hall, or scali, was the main room of the house. Daily indoor work would have been performed there. Food was prepared on the fire, and it was here that the quern was held, a device used for grinding flour. At night, the hall was converted to sleeping quarters for everyone that lived on the farm. The benches are lower and deeper, and the room includes a bed closet, an elevated area where the master of the farm and his wife would have slept. The doors of the closet provided additional security to the master of the farm against intruders. The additions at Stong Farm included a large dairy storage room, including large wooden vats set separately into the ground so that the contents could be kept cool. These wooden vats would have held skir and may have also been used to hold meat packed in sour whey. The second room appears to have been used as a latrine with two trenches that are set into either side of the room, running downward and out of the underside of the turf wall. This is not the first instance of a lavatory in a Viking Age farm. Another was discovered at Hofstafthir in northern Iceland, and its latrine was set in a separate outbuilding from the primary home. The open area, called Andirich, between the exterior door and the latrine at Stong, is what has been interpreted to be the Viking Age equivalent of a mudroom. Primarily used for storage, stripping dirty garments before entering living areas, and the like, a transition area before entering the main house. This area is separated from the main hall behind a door. In the early part of the Viking Age, it was very likely that everything was contained within the longhouse. In addition to the farmers themselves, animals, tools, food, and workshops were all contained within the structures many of which were later moved to their own outbuildings. These homes are not the only examples of construction by the Viking people. Harald Bluetooth, as mentioned last episode, constructed buildings known as Trelleborgs, ring-shaped fortresses that would house geometrically placed longhouses and were built for defense. This has been History with Hilda, and I hope that you've learned something new. That will wrap up this episode of The Main Vulva, and I thank you once more for joining me in my comfortable corner of the world. Next month, we will be joined by a new guest, my dear friend and someone whose name you've heard many times before, B of Homegrown Horror. We'll be reading the tale called Lokasena, which I have recounted several times in the past, though in fragments. Stay tuned for a trailer from Two Rock Radio. Jeff and Steph have just expanded their well of knowledge to you and have added main travel segments to their podcast to highlight and share about the places in the state that they love so much. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you next time. Welcome to Two Rock Radio. I'm Jeff, coming to you from Two Rock Ridge Farm in Washington, Maine. On this channel, we're going to talk about Maine agriculture, farming, and homesteading. From our own 10 years of experience to interviews with folks involved in the culture, business, and lifestyle, we're going to delve into the farming and homesteading of the state of Maine. For people thinking to start to farm to the old hands, this is the channel for you. Come along with us as we dig deep into what makes Maine unique to this type of farming. Cheers, and have a great day.